Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And I have just read the most phenomenal book, thought-provoking from cover to cover. And the author is here with us. What a treat. Dr. Madeline Levine, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for your kind words. I mean, cover to cover, this one is a page turner. The one I read of yours, and it's one of several books that you have, is called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. What a title. That one draws every parent in. Absolutely. So that book was published the week before lockdown uh, for COVID, and I had no idea idea. I was writing it two years before that. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Can you even imagine the timing could not have been more perfect? So you're a psychologist with close to 40 years experience as a clinician, consultant, educator, and author. The author of New York Times bestsellers, Teach Your Children Well, The Price of Privilege, the co-founder of Challenge Success. You have a whole lot going on. Can you just tell <laughs> us a little bit about your path and a little bit of your story here to these books and these different topics that you so eloquently write about. Thanks. That's great. I like that question because it gives me the chance to illustrate something that I think is really important, which is that most people don't have a straight path. You know, the idea that you've got to get your kid into the right kindergarten so they'll get into the right high school, so they'll get into the right college, so they'll get a good job with a lot of money. Like that straight line trajectory is actually a lot of mythology. And when I used to speak for years, I put up a slide saying, did you take the straight path or the squiggly path? Mm -hmm. And no matter where I was in the country, no matter where, or in Hong Kong at Goldman Sachs or at my local fire station, only one to 10% of people took a straight path. So that's the context. I went to the State University of New York at Buffalo. My dad unfortunately died when I was very young. So we had very little in the way of resources. We were on welfare. And I became a teacher first because that's I needed to make a living as soon as I got out of school. And I was a very bad teacher. And that's not false humility. I was a very bad teacher because hmm. like discipline is not my strong suit. I was teaching in the South Bronx of New York, tough area. Mm -hmm. But what I was really good at was going home with the kids after school and sitting at a table with, I was teaching middle school with the, the young man often and his mom. Mm -hmm. That was the usual combination. And trying to figure out how to get the kid an education, which they weren't getting in the school, and how to get them a skill set to get out of the inner city, which is where they lived. So I have this feeling that our failures really help us see what our strengths are, and that that's the way it goes for the vast majority of people. So parents who get really anxious, like my kid doesn't have a passion, you know, that's a, that stuff doesn't fall out of the sky. It takes years to figure out what you like, what you're good at. Yeah, that's my path. Yeah, I love the squiggly line. I have thought back to that so many times. I've talked to a lot of people about that. I think that it's just such a message of hope and it helps you feel a little bit less stressed because you talk, You had an interesting story in there about Steve Jobs and typography. There's really interesting things to think about. And so I've been thinking about that in terms of my own life and our kids. One of the biggest topics in here is that things have changed. Mm -hmm. Change has changed. And mm -hmm. you talk about that the rule Rules have changed. And because mm -hmm. we're sort of so stressed out, parents tend to double down. I love all the wording that you use, double down on the old ways. So mm -hmm. I think we all 
have this inkling that it has changed, but you've been doing this, like you said, you know, you've written a book 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. What are some of the big things that have changed in terms of parenting in the last couple decades? Well, in terms of parenting, for sure, it has become this kind of intensive parenting that, Mike, I have three grown millennial kids and the oldest one, it wasn't that way 40 years ago. He's 40 years old. It wasn't. My youngest 30, it had started already. So the idea of constantly being involved, you know, I don't know about the schools you have, but out here in Marin County, where I raised my kids, there was something called power school, So, you, which I call power snoop. It meant you could snoop on your kids all day long. If they had a pop quiz, how'd they do? If they didn't turn in their homework, how'd they do? That was mm-hmm. unheard of, certainly when I was being raised and even when my oldest was being raised. So, And it, it's a very interesting question, which I don't think has been fully answered as to what initiated that change. I think mm-hmm. part of it's economic. My dad was a cop, I'm a PhD, right? It was always that the next generation could go one step better. That's probably not the case anymore. And so what? You know, it's it's not the end of the world if your kid has a different profession or makes a different kind of income than, than you do. But people have become incredibly competitive. You know, all those bumper stickers that say, my child is an honor student. What that really is, is I'm an honor parent, as if your child's accomplishment is your accomplishment. And and being an involved parent is really, really important. But being over-involved is very damaging in, in many ways. And I think it's why we're seeing this huge uptick in anxiety, depression, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. And then you talk about sort of the skill set that kids are going to need. And I think this is something that every parent needs to hear. And you talk about how because we're scared, it's hard to make the right decision because we don't really even know what we're preparing for. And that causes a lot of anxiety. But you do such an amazing job in this book time and again, talking about what kids are going to need and how Mm -hmm. they can get those skills. So can you tell parents, I mean, obviously, people used to stay in jobs for their whole lifetime. And then this book, you say, well, they're going to have four jobs in the first decade out of college. So how do we prepare kids, just like the subtitle, for a rapidly changing world? So one thing is we don't prepare them the way we used to be prepared. You used to go to school, more or less. And as I've said about my own story, it was never a straight road. So I'll often have parents say to me, who's pushing and pushing and pushing a kid to go to Brown. And the parent will say, Brown was great for me. How could it not be great for my kid? Well, it might be great for your kid, but not necessarily because the skill set is very different. And I have this story, which is one of my favorites, so I'll repeat it. Um, This became real to me about five, six years ago. I was refinancing my house and uh, my youngest son asked if he could come along. And I said, sure. And we went to First Republic Bank and met with the uh, manager of the mortgage department. And Jeremy was with me. He was being who he usually is, which is very attentive. And so I, I was there an hour and a half, twice, 20 seconds each. He says, you know, Ma, the time's running. You want me to put a quarter in the parking meter? I said, sure, go ahead. My voice is always kind of scratchy. At one point, he said, I saw tea outside, mom, would you like some with honey? And then he turns to the head of the department and says, would you like a cup? Maybe 90 seconds out of the 90 minutes. And when that is over, I get my mortgage and she turns to my son and says, I'd like to offer you a job. Wow. Yeah, it was a wow moment, but it was a really important moment. She didn't know a thing 
about my son in the sense that we think about hiring. She didn't know if he went, she didn't know if he was a drug dealer, if he went to college, if he went to Stanford or, you know, the community, she knew nothing. So of course I was fascinated by this. And I said, could you tell me a little bit about that decision? And what she said, and what I heard over and over again, while writing that book, she said, I can teach him the skills to be in my department. I can't teach him to be the person I want sitting next to me when I have a cold, when I forgot something, I can't teach him that. And I heard that from every, at Google, at LinkedIn, at Bank of America, at every major place that I went to, what we used to unfortunately call soft skills. And I Mm. use foundational because I don't like soft. It's like mushy and it's not. It's empathy. It's uh, self-regulation. It's awareness of what's going on. It's collaboration. It's the it's a little bit of risk-taking because he's talking mm-hmm. in an environment that he doesn't really know anything about. And that's the skill set that people are looking for. Now, are there technical jobs that need a lot of technical knowledge? Of course, but they are much fewer than people think, much mm-hmm. fewer than people think. So the idea of like straight A's, which always struck me as ridiculous because you know, if you're honest with yourself, I'm not straight A at, at, at lots of things. Right? Yep, for sure. Um, How can we all be straight A's at all of the things? <laughs> right. And, you know, I'm a basketball fan. You go to your right, like you do in basketball, you go to your strong side. And so I often think about this. I was an average math student. I was a very good English student. And if my parents had pulled me out and put me with tutors and spent the time trying to get my math grade up, one, it never would have happened. And two, I would have lost the time on something I liked and was really good at. So the parent who calls and says, I heard your talk and I want to talk about my son's grades. And I know what's coming. You know, the son has four A's and a C. And she's not calling about the four A's. She's calling about the C. So it's been a big mistake for a long, a long time. But having had that experience, that was what made me think there's a, you know, there's something to write about in here mm-hmm. that he would be. And he just to close the link on the story. So he, he was in college at the time. He was in his last year of college. So he finished the next year, took the job, hated it. And but same, I guess, you know, I just realized at this minute, Jenny, same mm-hmm. as my story, hated it. Yes. And he's a lawyer now and he loves what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So he needed that experience to find out what he wasn't good at and what he didn't love. Yeah, to learn what you don't like. You know, you talked in the book and I you never hear people say this. You said not everyone is a Harvard or Yale student. Isn't it okay that some kids are B students and I used to work with this man. I used to teach um, as well. I taught high school math, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> but I had this coworker that was just real wise. And he would say all of these parents that were getting their kids all of these extra tutorings for SAT, ACT, he says, well, why are you doing that? Then your kid's going to maybe end up in a spot that they're kind of out of their league and they're mm-hmm. really going to struggle. And I thought that made a lot of sense. So it's mm-hmm. like, why can't we just let our kids be who they are? That seems to be something that has really changed. Have you noticed? Well, that's an interesting expression, be who they are. So kids, I think, are in process, right? And what parents are trying to do 
haven't thought about it this way. What parents are trying to do is mold that process. Now, some of that's absolutely necessary, right? You don't go across the street (laughs) against the light. You know, you don't take heroin. I mean, there's a lot of things we need to do. But I have a very strong feeling about what happens when we do things that are not necessary. And that says a lot in that book about what I call accumulated disability. And that is the outcome of parents who come in for a child prematurely or unnecessarily with all good intentions because, I mean, you have five kids, you should be doing this interview. <laughs> you have you have on the ground experience. Um, we cannot avoid our kids being unhappy. We can't, right? I raised three kids. Now I have grandchildren. They're unhappy some of the time. And the real test is, can they deal with it, right? They don't live in my house anymore. I'm very lucky they live close by, but they don't, they don't live here. And this idea that you can protect your children when they don't get invited to the popular kids party, when they don't make the team that they wanted to make, when somebody doesn't sit with them at lunch and we go up to school and say, you know, that is that bullying and you know, you're supposed to do something. It's a huge mistake because mostly what I see, Jenny, are late teenagers, young adults. Mm -hmm. And I see them because they're missing an entire skill set of management, risk management, conflict management. Mm -hmm. You know, we just came through COVID where kids were locked up for a couple of years. I'm in California. And the kids who had no capacity to manage were in a lot of trouble. You know, we're seeing a big uptick and and it's not over. COVID's not over for a lot of these kids Mm -hmm. who miss time. But, you know, I like it in simple terms. Like, I think the example I use in that book is is a dog walking past a dog. So, you know, your eight-year-old comes home and is a little teary and a little trembly and says, the dog barked at me and I'm really scared. I I don't want to walk past the dog. you know, a neighbor's dog or something. And, you know, you you have three options. One of your options is to say some variation of man up, you know, like too bad. Deal with it, right. Right. Uh, Another option is to say, oh, honey, you know, you look scared and you're crying and I'm so sorry. And tomorrow I'm going to drive you to school um, and we'll go around the block so you don't have to be scared by the dog. And that's an equally bad option. And I'll say why in a minute. And the third option is to be supportive. You know, I see you're really scared. Maybe tomorrow I'll walk with you. And I could do that for a day or two till you feel a little more comfortable. That's your better option. Why is it a bad idea to avoid it? You know, take the car and, and drive around the block. Because that's life. Life is a series of small challenges. And if we can meet them, we go on to bigger and bigger challenges. So the cha- if you're a young child, wow. it's who's, who's got the shovel in the sandbox. And if you're a little older, it might be, you know, a barking dog. And when you get a little older than that, it's being let left out of a, a, the popular group. And then it's the boy or the girl who breaks your heart. You know, just get the, they get bigger and bigger. And if you haven't had the practice of meeting those challenges successfully, you don't have that skill set. And, and I think we get really hung up more with older kids. So I have grandchildren now, very young grandchildren, you know, and I'm watching them. Thank you. The best. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, I I get to watch them again, like my children learn how to walk, right? And they take a few steps and they fall down. And they take a few steps and they fall down. 
and everybody's applauding, you know, yeah, get up again, Jackson. That was great. Try it again. You know, nobody is saying you're going to be flipping hamburgers if you don't learn, you know, get up. Right. It's not like that. We have, I think this is important, actually, as I hear myself. We, we have to not only allow it, we have to take some pleasure in it. Cheer it on. Yeah, 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 yeah. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my Vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessies Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, Transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. I'm just thinking about we were with my grandson who's one and doesn't talk yet last night. So my husband and he are just barking at each at each other, making sounds at each other. And that was a great interaction. But imagine if, you know, my husband said, Well, don't talk to me till you can talk in complete sentences. Wow. Like they would both miss a lot of pleasure. So mm-hmm. I haven't thought about that before, but Yeah, we lose that. We lose that over the course of time. Very quickly, I think. Very quickly, all of a sudden, it feels like, oh, wait, they're behind and we've got to make sure we're pushing them. One of the things that stood out to me in your book, which is very eye-opening, you talk about all these skills that kids are going to need. And it's interesting. I wrote down so many of them. Flexibility, collaboration, critical thinking, curiosity, empathy, optimism, adaptability, enthusiasm, self-sufficiency, all of these different skills. And one of the ones that you talked about quite a bit was the social skills. And so with 1,000 hours outside, we're having this goal of play Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. been lost along the way. And it is a simple premise 
it's very impactful. These kids are having a lot of social interactions with other kids Mm -hmm. and mixed ages. And when you Mm -hmm. talked about the social skills in the book and several different parts, you're talking about how these kids are going to have a whole bunch of different colleagues, which I thought Mm -hmm. was really interesting. So can you talk to us about that part of childhood, the interpersonal skills? It came up time and again of what kids are going to need. You talked about Google's Project Oxygen in there and that some kids have never had the chance to feel bad and just so many great things. I'm smiling because the issue of play, so I'm a psychologist for 40 years. The issue of play has been around for at least since I was in graduate school. And yet it is still a question I have to answer. At I've, I've been to like 300 schools around the country. Somebody always says, well, you know, you say play is good or being outdoors, but I'm too afraid to have my child outdoor. Or there's nobody else to play with because there are no other children outdoors. And I think that if people really understood what you're doing, really understood it, the value of play, the value of being outdoors. It's not just, oh, they get to play. I mean, the the research is so clear that kids who spend out, you you know all this, spend time outdoors, they have better social skills, they have better coordination, they get more vitamin D, they are in better control of their emotions. I mean, the list is as long as the list you just wrote me about things that'll be needed. And it's really shocking to me that this is still controversial. The fact is that it's a safer time than ever before for kids to be playing outside, much safer than when I was growing up, when my kids were growing up. I have kids probably your age. So that whole safety issue is just this hypervigilance that people have and the 24-hour news cycle, which is, Mm -hmm. you don't want me to go off on that, but it's really, I think, in many ways, unbelievably destructive. So something bad happens and you hear about it time and time and time again, as if it's happening over and over again, which it isn't. So I think the value of making sure kids are outside in, I think it's in England where they have these playgrounds. Have you seen these playgrounds where there's saws and hammers and like all this kind of stuff, like an American parent would go out of their mind. Mm -hmm. And yet the kids learn how to do it. That I mean, nobody wants kids to be hurt. They will. There's a good book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee by Wendy. Right. Mogul. I mean, but you read your book and you think, okay, maybe I do want my kids to be hurt. I mean, that's sort of what yeah. I get out of it is, okay, my kids are complaining because their backpack is too heavy or because they're tired. And so I've started to view things a little bit differently. Like, okay, well, well, this is okay. It's okay to be challenged. It's okay for things to be hard. And this is going to help you in the future. Like you said, the hardships just continue to get larger. The challenges get larger. So you want your kids to be able to handle that. Right. So a funny experience. The last talk I gave before COVID, before lockdown, it was at a, a private school here in San Francisco, big audience, like 500 people. And they were just kind of carrying on about pushing their kids. That's not nice of me to say carrying on, but that's what it felt like. You know, uh, things were so hard. They were studying too hard, which kids are spending way too much time on homework um, because we know exactly how much homework is beneficial. And a lot of kids are doing a lot more than that. Anyway. What's, so the, well, what's the number? What's the, what's the, the number? The number the number for elementary school is actually zero, but the concession is 10 minutes per grade. You know, it would be like 10 minutes for a first grader. 
And for middle school, it's an hour and a half. And for high school, it's no more than three hours. And what happens after that is the learning just drops off. There's really no point in it. And the head of every school, Harris is the guy, I believe, who did this very definitive study, uh, like a a meta-analysis, meaning Mm. lots of studies. Every head of school knows this. And when I talk to them about it, they say, yeah, but the parents, you know, we say we're going to cut back on homework and the parents are upset that the school won't be as competitive. I wish parents, this is my two cents on parenting. Well, I've just given a half hour. But anyway, my my important two cents, I think, is think of raising children as a movie. I'm no different than any other parent. When my oldest son, when we moved to the suburbs and I was going to take him out of a private school, put him in the public schools, all my kids went to public school eventually. And I had him tested and the tester said, no, he can't go to a public school. It would be a big mistake for your son and blah, blah, blah. Well, he went to public school. He did fine. And he went to UCLA. He's a lawyer and he's got two kids. And like, if you take it moment by moment, you get caught up in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not what raising children is. It's a 30-year project, easily. And it's a movie. We get Mm -hmm. so, oh, he didn't make the team. Oh, he didn't get into his first place school. Oh, she didn't get asked by this guy. If I could communicate anything, and I'm not very good at it because I don't really have the language yet. But when your kids are grown up, my kids are grown up now. All that matters to me is what kind of people they are. That's all that matters to me, that they make good choices about who they marry, that they're good parents, that they contribute. And while you kind of know that in the back of your head when you're raising children, you still get drawn into the day-to-day competition. and, And it's, I can't tell you more than just to say at the end of the day, you want your kid to be good people, make Mm -hmm. good choices. And uh, that's the idea of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because you had this statement in the book that I feel like is maybe a little controversial. And maybe I didn't even quite read it in the way that you intended. But you were talking about sort of the tiger mother, you know, that this is we've all sort of become these parents that are pushing. That's the word that you've used so many times. We're pushing. And even you talked a lot about how about the teens are pushing themselves now. Even they can't pull it back. But the pushing and you had the statement where you said this was a really big statement. It's a lot easier to practice a piece of music for four hours, then to navigate the group dynamics and status rivalries of a room full of 14-year-old girls. And I almost wonder if in some ways, because things are so scary and uncertain, it's easier in some sense to grasp onto the things that we can measure because everything else is chaotic. And we don't really know if the kids go hang out at the park. We can't measure that. Mm-hmm. And so it feels scary and it feels uncertain. Do you think that that's a, I thought that that statement about the, because it, I don't, the four hours of music, actually, that would seem like that would be hard. But then in some sense, it's filling their time. You know what they're doing. Right. And, and in all fairness, that's not my statement. That statement was written by, not Frank Bruni, by a New York Times writer. Okay, so that was a quote. That was a quote that yeah, was in was the book. that was a quote, which I loved also. Mm-hmm. Um, it's thought-provoking. Well, but I think you hit on something really, picked out something really important in there. And that's, I think our own anxiety is so high that a lot of the mistakes that we're making, because you know, I go to schools where I've spoken three times. They've heard over and over again. So it's not for lack of information. 
you know, it's not a lack of information that your listeners have. It's something else that gets in the way of being able to live this instead of just. Yes, that's what you say. You say you have to do less, but getting parents to back off is often very challenging. Right. But so why? Why is, you know, if I said to you, you're serving whatever kind of fruit and they just found out that it's toxic to children and leads to brain death. I mean, you'd stop it in a heartbeat, right? Right. So we have all this information that says, you know, constant pushing, constant using metrics to determine the value of a kid. The number of kids who have said to me, I don't know if it's in there. I'm only as good as my last performance, meaning I'm only as good as my last test, my last report card. I mean, that's an awful, awful way to feel. So why aren't parents listening to this? And that's part of the reason I wrote this last book. I mean, I really kind of said what I had to say in the first two books about child development and Mm -hmm. individual families benefited. Did I think the whole country <laughs> benefited, even though it was they were big sellers? I don't think so. And I think, I said to you earlier, I don't think that question's fully been answered. Of right. Why not? If your child's physical health was at risk, you'd take care of it in a heartbeat. But mm. you, you have the biggest universities, the best research in the world saying, essentially, kids need the four S's. I don't know if that's in there. This is from Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson Payne. They need to be safe, secure, seen, and soothed, right? And everything after that is gravy. And so why aren't parents hearing that? I think it's because we've lost community. I think it's because lockdown didn't help because there was a lot of isolation. Um, Religion is playing less and less of a role in people's lives. The structures that made people feel part of something have diminished. And I think that leaves us very anxious when we're facing stuff we don't know. You know, it used to be my mother's mother lived down the street. There was a problem. She didn't go to a parenting expert. There was no such thing. She went to her mother down the block. We don't have that, right? Yeah. Um, I'm very lucky my kids live close to me, but most people, many people, that's not the case. So if you're facing the unknown, You don't have the structure, you don't have the rabbi, you don't have the priest, you don't have your mother, you don't have your mother-in-law. We're kind of lost and we focus in on the family. That becomes our touchstone. And people always think I'm writing about children, which I am, but I'm also writing about parents because our rates of anxiety and depression have gone up just as much as our kids. And which Mm -hmm. came first? Which came first? Probably the fact Mm -hmm. that our own rates are going up is, you know, an ang- anxiety is kind of catching, right? Yeah. You live in an anxious house, you're more likely to become it. That is an interesting question, right? And then you say in there, we have to guard their mental health, which you don't ever really hear anybody say. You hear people talk about the statistics, but there's never that next step that says, hey, parent, hey, educator, do something about it or see if there's something that you can do about it. And that was a very eye-opening part. You had that in the part where you were talking about, should parents put limits on social media? Like, yes, they should, because we have to guard (laughs) their mental health. And we have to be the ones, you know, you say we have to insist that anxiety be met with courage and all of these things that really help optimism and gratitude. And so it was this thought that 
I mean, I don't even know if I really had the thought before that. You just think, oh, I've got to feed them and make sure they have good grades. That kind of feels to be the whole of parenting. This message about what are you doing to help the mental health of your children, of your family? You said it, but it seems to get lost. You know, you just you hit just hit on one of my favorite lines that I keep on my computer, which is why I'm leaning in. It says, well, I don't even know where I got this from. Why is it that we have invested so much into material and scientific technology to build better material goods? Yet we do so little about building better children. And better children is not about higher grades. Better children is, and you have to answer that yourself. You have to answer yourself, what is raising a successful child being? For some people, it means good grades. I think that's a mistake. And I think that has to do with what the parents fear, what's missing in the parents' lives. I think in that book, I had the the young man who was in advanced calculus, advanced calculus, came to my office because his father had to grade every pop quiz he got. He's in advanced calculus. Why can't he grade it himself? Wow. And and the father's and the, ki- the kids in the office, because he's got trichotillomania, which he's pulling out his eyebrows and his eyelashes. And, and I said to the father, you got to stop this. And he says, I'll stop it when he gets into MIT. The problem with that, aside from what you think about it morally or ethically or anything like that, the problem with it is he's not going to get into MIT. Like getting into MIT is not only about mm-hmm. him being good in math. It's also about him not being in a hospital rehab so that he doesn't pull his eyebrows and his hairs out. Wow. So the focus, you have to look at the parent, the parent who is just focused on performance because it's easy. Performance is easy, right? And, you know, I did the same thing. My, my youngest son was a pretty average student. He was like a B minus student, always B minus. And it was like, ah, Jeremy, can't you just like make that a B? Does it always have to be a B? Anyway, he's the one that was offered the job. He's about wow. to become a dad. He's probably the one in the family that is most kind. And so, you know, we're just I'm married with three children and now two and a half grandchildren, one's on the way. And it's like, you know, you got to think long and hard about what's going to matter in a child. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com outside120 code outside 120. 
Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember to sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com/outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside 50 to get 50% off. Yeah. Okay. So then Madeline, the book, okay. The book took a turn at the end that I was not suspecting and I loved it. So you have this book about preparing our kids for change. And then at the end, you touched on the change that we will experience once our children are grown. And you had so many touching things in there about how one of your sons had said something like, you no longer have children, but you'll always have kids or something along those lines. And so you're talking about this concept of building scaffolding. And we're kind of so hyper-focused on building scaffolding for our children. How are we going to get them out into the adult world? But what about ourselves? What do we need to be thinking about for ourselves? So thanks for picking up on that. That's really, that's, that chapter is my favorite part of the book. Because I think it's, I think I contribute to a hypervigilance about children by writing about children all the time. You know, so I'm giving people another task to do when they're raising children. When, you know, five kids, I mean, how, how many other tasks can be dumped on you? So it's really important, I think, to see the part of my writing that's about adults. And, you know, a little bit of it is clear. Um, the, num- the number of people who, women who I've seen in my practice over the years who are lost when their children leave home, who are still doing the laundry, who are still making the meals, have not prepared themselves for a role where being mom is not primary. You're still mom. You know, that was a good line from my son. You know, you'll always have kids. I'm still a mom, but I got a lot of hours in the day where I'm not making lunches, driving kids to soccer, stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I think I think I said the two things on a personal level that I felt like I really missed and had to make up. One was friendships, three kids, big career, a surgeon husband, uh, a mother with Alzheimer's. I ha- I just didn't make time, and that was a big mistake. Um, and because that's the missing community, that's right. the missing community. Right. And frankly, COVID gave me the opportunity to change that. So wow, I do have. Friends, that's ironic. Well, yeah, but Tell you know, why? Because I, I couldn't go anywhere. 
That's counterintuitive. No, because I was traveling all over the country before. I was never, every week I was off somewhere. So yeah, you are in hot demand. Yes, that that is a thing about you. You're in hot demand. Okay, yeah, that does make a lot of sense then. So that, that, because what I realized for all of us is I had a narrow toolbox, right? You needed a toolbox to get through COVID. And when they first announced it, I go, oh, great. You know, I'm kind of introverted. I'm a writer. I'm a shrink. I'm in my office a lot of the time. Fine. So I'm like, oh, that's going to be great. I'll get to write for the next two weeks, <laughs> which turned into right, two right, years. Right. Right. And then right. Nobody wants to write every day for two years. <laughs> nobody, so, right. you know, it makes you realize what's your coping skills and how can you yeah. enlarge them? Because yeah. when your kids transition out of the house, you're going to be very sad if you don't like I don't have really hobbies, which I'm doing a lot of thinking about. Um, I love to read. Uh, I like culture, you know, and the arts and stuff like that. But but I don't have a hobby. That's my next task for myself. Oh, I'm so curious. <laughs> I want to know, know what I'll it is. You know. <laughs> yes. It'll be something with design or it's, it's something totally outside of what I've been doing. But, you know, I'm still busy and I have grandchildren. So that's wonderful. But the moms who had nothing except their kids achievement and the kid leaves and they realize, you know, that bumper sticker that is a stand in for I'm a great parent or the Harvard or Yale or Stanford Brown bumper sticker that says, oh, you know, look what an accomplished parent I have, an accomplished child. And the kid graduates college and that bumper sticker is no longer relevant. And I think women need other women. I think that was missing for me. And I know the price of that was increased focus on my children. It was what mattered. And here's an interesting story you can't see, but right outside here, I have a little garden. I'm in San Francisco. And during COVID, I had a string of kids come sit out in the garden, you know, at six feet with masks on, depressed, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. Oh, you know, it's never going to end. And I'm so depressed. And they're smoking weed and playing games all day long. And there were a lot of them. So I decided I made a deal. I said, you can continue to see me on one condition. And that's that you do something of service for other people during COVID. And I had a list, you know, you could do Jewish family service, you could do Meals on Wheels, you you know, it didn't matter what you did, but you had to be of service in some way and, and not spend so damn much time thinking about how awful life was for you, because it was a lot more awful for a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And in my professional career, that was the best thing I ever did. I would love wow. to tell you that I'm a brilliant psychologist and I interpreted their depression and they got better. I, you know, nah. It really was the expectation that the world is not all about you. And I'm happy. I'm happy to see you if you're happy to be a contributor. Wow. That reminds me of what you wrote about optimism, which mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. loved that part about optimism. And I've not heard anybody say that. You know, people are talking about the job market is changing. And you had mm-hmm. statistics in there too about our kids are going to have jobs that we don't even know what they are. And so they're going to have to be flexible and they're going to have to be creative. But you said optimism was one of the characteristics, one of the competencies that our kids should have. And then you talked about how do we become optimistic? There was a whole thing about pessimism and optimism. And I'm going to have to kind of scooch through my notes to find where I put it. But I thought that was so interesting. You talked about how it kind of starts in childhood. Yeah, it does. 
And, it, you know, it's, I want to say something about all the things I talk about. And that's, um, you know, people might say, well, resilience or optimism or any of these things. Isn't that just genetic? You know, some kids, five of them, some are happier than others, some are more active than others. And that's true. I mean, there's always a genetic component. But I like the phrase, um, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And so I'm interested in optimism because by nature, I am very pessimistic and it's not a good thing. I mean, pessimism, more realistic. That's the only, <laughs> that's the only thing that we have that's good, but it's, it's not a good idea to cultivate your pessimism. It's a much better idea to cultivate your optimism. And that has to do with how you see things, how you process things. If I give a talk and it doesn't go well, Let's use that as an example. The optimist would say, God, I was really tired. That was a long trip cross country and I'll do better next time. And the pessimist would say, that's you, Madeline. You know, you never get it right. You, it, It's always a problem for you. Those are two very different ways of seeing the same thing. And because we know that optimism is tied to a whole bunch of healthy mental health outcomes, right? you know, when your child comes and says, I'm so stupid, I, I, I failed my math test because I'm stupid. That's a correction you need to make. And before you make it, have the child think about it. Like, what makes you, this is what we do in our office. Somebody comes to my office, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, and says that. What makes you think that? Well, Ma, look, I got an F on my test. Huh, okay. And what else makes you think that? Well, you know, I got a B on my last test. Oh, that's really interesting. What do you mean? So, you know, you're trying to help them think through pessimistic thinking, which is mm -hmm. I'm always stupid when in fact, you know, it's not like that. The way we started this interview, I was bad teacher. I just wasn't good at it. But out of that, I learned something else. So I could go around and say, you know, I really suck at teaching. It was such a failure for me. God, it was embarrassing. Or I can say what it really was. It was an opportunity. And I think that's a big thing. I think if parents saw those failures, and I don't like the word failure because I'm a mom and a grandma, like, I, don't, you know, go have your child fail. That's a tough sell, right? Yeah, right. A, a tough sell. I think of it as trial and error learning. You know, I learned it was trial and error. I tried something and it didn't work. And so yeah. I learned from it. And I think if we thought about those experiences as learning opportunities instead of as failures and communicated that to our kids, mm -hmm. that would be helpful. Yeah. And the growth mindset. And what you had written in here about optimism, which is what made me think about it. And you were talking about the kids that were sitting in there having a hard time in COVID, which it would have been a really hard age. I have thought a lot about, I'm glad I was at the age I was at when things shut down because we were kind of settled in our life. But if you're 18, 19, trying to launch those are hard years. But you said yeah. childhood pessimism is a precursor to adult pessimism and is associated with depression. Yeah. So dealing with it early is important. Doing things for other people increases optimism. So does the practice of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Wow. I would not have thought that. I would have thought mm -hmm. optimism is you just have to, you know, talk yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. 
which would be the practice of gratitude in some ways, but just to do things for other people increases your optimism. So that's what made me think about when you were talking about those college age kids and to get out in the world and to invest in it. And so that was really a striking thing for, I learned so much from this book. Oh, thank you so much. I I think the thing about optimism, gratitude, is like you can cultivate them for sure. You can cultivate them for sure. But if I'm right that this hyper-focus on achievement is a function of a loss of community, what better way to get back a sense of purpose at the end of the day? You know, that's the end of the day is do you have a purpose? And that's what you want your kids to have. And it really will not matter where they went to school. They should go to college. We know kids who go to college end up with better paying jobs. But the idea that you have a purpose in life is, you know, that's foundational. Yeah. Yeah. And you had this whole section of just about courageousness. And I thought, oh, the book is just such a great read. How do you become brave? I mean, because if you do these things, if you allow your child to be a B minus student, if you don't have the honor roll sticker, if they don't go to Harvard or Yale, you're doing things different than the culture is sort of screaming. And so you have to be brave. I think you have to be courageous to trust in the chaos and to trust Mm -hmm. in these unmeasurable, I don't even know if that's a word, measurable things. And so you talk about cultivating bravery. Yeah, yeah. How do we do that? Well, again, I think I've made it clear that I think a lot of it comes back to us, you know, not our yeah. children. And, and I think the story in there was about my or maybe it was one of my other books about my son got invited, Jeremy, the same kid had asthma, he got invited to climbing camp. I was out of my mind with anxiety about it. But he had it under good control. He knew what to do. I decided to let him go worried that he wouldn't breathe. I was the one who couldn't breathe the whole weekend until he came home and I could exhale. So we have to challenge ourselves with the information that allowing these kinds of things to happen in our children's lives builds growth, builds resilience, builds character. Mm -hmm. And again, if you don't have somebody to talk to, if you don't have a community to go, it's very hard to tolerate that much anxiety. It's much easier. It would have been so much easier to say you're not allowed to go. So we're testing ourselves. Yeah. We're cultivating bravery in ourselves in order to cultivate it in our families. And you talked about, well, you just said about the breath. There are days when any of us would be hard pressed to find time to take a restorative breath, yet doing just that is critical to our goals. And then you talk about sleep. Let's just get enough sleep. Can our kids and can we just get enough sleep and that will change things? So Madeline, what a phenomenal book, Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. It has really been such a gift to be able to have read this book and gotten so much out of it and then to get to talk to you about it. Thank you. Um, I can't wait to read the other ones. I learned so much and it gave me so much to think about. And I, like I said, I've been talking to other people about their squiggly paths. And, yeah. you know, it's like, where do you find bravery? Well, you find it in books like yours. It helps you to be courageous and to live differently. So thank you for your time. Absolutely. I want to say one more thing. I'm, I'm picking up a lot of interesting things just out of this discussion with you, the things that interest you. And, you know, you picked up on bravery, you picked up on optimism. Now imagine if those things were as important in a family as mm. grades or performance, right? If yeah. at dinner when you're talking about something and you say, well, you know, we're a brave family. And I think 
whatever it is, like you're saying, we don't think that much about mental health, but we should because yeah. one out, depends what statistic you're looking at. One out of three or one out of four kids is going to have a mental health crisis. And that is a huge number. It's more than have asthma. It's more, it, you know, it's more than have any illness and we're not paying enough attention to it. So yeah. it challenges us to challenge them and ourselves. It gave me tools, like even our youngest daughter is six and she signed up with her older sister who's nine to be in this really little play in our community. I mean, she had like 10 lines. She was the three little pigs. And for a couple weeks ahead of time, she was really distraught. I'm so scared. You know, and I don't know. I think maybe had I not read your book or different things, maybe I would have pulled her. I, but I just kept mm -hmm. saying, it's okay to be scared. I get scared mm -hmm. about things. You're brave. You know, and then she did it and she did great. And so just even that, just the verbiage and the skill set to make these choices. Madeline, because this is the 1000 Hours Outside podcast, and yeah. we talked about play and the importance of play, we always end our podcast with the same question. So the question is, what is a favorite outdoor childhood memory that you have? Um, my favorite, as soon as you said it, it's there was a tree in the alley in the back of the house. And I love climbing that tree with other kids. It was I went back to my house that I grew up in recently, and the first thing I went to see was that tree. Wow. So I felt wow. um, I felt a real connection with the tree as a child. Yeah, that's my first memory. That's so beautiful simplicity. Madeline, thank you so much for your time and for your writing and for all the things that you're doing to really impact families and parents around the world. Thank you, Ginny, and thank you for what you're doing. It's critically important, critically important. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clux. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clux, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.